How's everybody doing? Everybody's doing okay? All right, good. Now you get to hear me talk, so maybe maybe not so much now, huh? If you have your Bibles, open it up to Matthew chapter 22. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 22. We're going to read tonight when I get to it, verses 34 to 40, but I want to kind of lay some background for a minute. <clears throat> the last time I preached um, about this topic, which is the foundation par- paradigm, I-, I preached from Matthew 7, 24 to 29. Short by recap, <clears throat> or short recap is that that was the life that is built on the rock, which is Christ, in obedience to the word. Right? We have to be hearers and doers, not hearers and ignorers. And we walk through what that looked like. <clears throat> so the next principle that I want to talk about, same title, the foundation paradigm, but this time instead of Christ and the Word, I'm going to call it Christ and the Law. And so this is uh, the passage we're going to read tonight is when the Pharisees come and they, they ask Jesus, what's the two greatest commandments? And so this is foundational for Christian living. And also the reason why I'm sharing all these foundational things with you is not because I don't think you don't know it, right? Because that, that's, that's not fair for me to assume that. I, I assume all of you do know it, actually. But I'm doing that because when we're ministering to people, these basic principles are the first things that people forget in a crisis or in a moment of pressure when they're overwhelmed, when they're tired, when, you know, for all intents and purposes, when everything is just gone to heck and, and is just ruined. OK, so I'm saying this because I hope I'm hoping that you guys will latch on to this. We can go, you know, you can go back and listen to the messages or whatever, because when you're ministering to people, sometimes these are the places that we start to help them gain back, oh yeah, okay, I do need to have my my house built on the rock in obedience to into God's word. And then tonight we're going to talk about the two greatest commandments and what that looks like practically. If, if I ask you what the two greatest commandments are, I know every single one of you could stand up and you could say it, right? Okay, so I want to, what I want to do is I want to unpack that. And so what I want to do, and, and guys, I promise you, I, I love it when this happens. I think it's fun. I think it's the Lord working in how Lewis and I are ministering from the pulpit in the church. And even when Caleb comes up and read too, um, there's always some, some small connection. Sometimes it's big. I told Lewis after a sermon on Sunday, I said, well, he did a lot of my homework for me. Thank you. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'm preaching about the Pharisees. And he gave a really good rundown of what the Pharisees were like on Sunday, right? In his sermon. And I was appreciative of that because some of the verses that he, he gave out there, I was like, oh yeah, I didn't even think about those ones. Okay. So what I want to do is, before we get into the text, I want to, um, or actually I'm going to read the text and then I'm going to point out three observations. And the first thing I want to do though is I want to unpack what the Pharisees are trying to do. So let's go to the text. Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. <clears throat> then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. That is the first and greatest commandment, or that's the first and the great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and prophets. Okay, so that's that's the situation. But how do they get here? And I want to back that up. So three observations tonight. The first observation, we'll call it the preface. The second observation, we're going to call it the plot. 
And the third observation, which is going to be our application as well, we're going to call it the point. The preface, the plot, and the point. All those words start with P. I made it very easy for you because it's easier for me to do it that way too because I'm a simple guy. So what's the preference? Or I'm sorry, the preface. The preface is this. There are people involved in this story, right? So we have the players. That's another P word. You're welcome. So we have, we have the players. Who are the players in this story? They're the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. Wait, Brother Robert, you didn't say Herodians in that passage. You're right, I didn't. But I want to introduce these people as they've been introduced throughout this chapter specifically. So go to Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. And this is, this is set in the scene. <clears throat> it says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them again by parable. Okay, so he's speaking to them in, in, in parables. So what is a parable? I'm going to read this because I, I don't, I didn't have it memorized. It's, it's a lot, but I want to make sure that you understand exactly what a parable is just in case. The placing of one thing by the side of another. A parable is literally something cast alongside something else. Jesus's parables were stories that were cast alongside a truth in order to illustrate that truth. His parables were teaching aids and can be thought of as extended analogies or inspired comparisons. A common description of a parable is that that is an earthly story with a heavenly blessing. Okay, so we hear a lot of Jesus stories start out. You can liken the kingdom of God to fill in the blank, right? There's many of those kind of stories. The reason why it's important here is go back to Matthew 21, verse 45. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spake of them. So we're setting the scene here because Jesus has been speaking to these guys in parables and he is actually condemning them in the parables. Okay, he's pointing out, these are your flaws. If you can, if you have ears to hear and eyes to see, you'll get it. But if you don't, you won't. But what they do get and what they do understand is Jesus is calling them out. This is an interesting thing. The word parable is two Greek words. So the Greek word for parable is parabole. And I'm geeking out on you for a minute, but just bear with me. Para, para, means something that is beside or near, right? That come alongside portion. Balo is the word, what do you think of when I say balo? Ball, right? It's it's the literally the Greek word for throw. So to cast something alongside something is to throw a truth out alongside what? A fallacy so that we can bring the story together so that there's two views that we can look at, the right way and the wrong way. The right character or the wrong character. Think about the parable of the prodigal son. Okay, so that's what's going on. Jesus is speaking in parables. And he's got the Pharisees and, the, and all these players, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, all messed up. They're angry at him, so they want to get him. That's what it says in verse 46. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. So the people are starting to follow Jesus. They're really starting to understand what he's saying. Eyes are opening. Hearts are being changed. All those kinds of things. So they can't just flat out beat him or kill him or anything like that. Why? Because they fear what's going to happen from the people. So they come up with a new plan. Go to Matthew chapter 22, and we'll keep diving into this. Verse 15 and 16. <clears throat> then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him or trap him in his talk. And they set out unto him 
they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Why is that important? Here begins the tag team match of all of these different people groups to try to get Jesus, to try to trip him up. It says it in verse 15 that they might trap him in his talk. We're going to ask this guy questions. We're going to set him up. We want him to speak badly against us so that we can charge or condemn him. We want him to say something that is contradictory to the law of God so that we can get him for that blasphemy as well. They're trying to get him in the way that he talks. The interesting thing about verse uh <clears throat> 16, the first portion right there, that first little section to the first comma, and they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Well, the Herodians are a political party. They're not religious, and they support the Roman-backed Herodian dynasty. Roman-backed. These are Jews that are okay with what the Romans are doing. You think the Pharisees are friends with those guys? In real life, let me paint you a picture. If the Democrats and the Republicans were to team up together and come into the middle of the aisle to do something great for this country because they recognized the threat of whatever they were fighting together for, that's what that would look like. The Herodians and the Pharisees are teaming up because both parties understand Jesus is serious The people are following him and they're losing control of their power and their clout, right? So they team up. I know all of us are laughing inside. That was a joke. Y'all could have laughed. When I said Democrats and Republicans come together in the middle of the aisle, you all could have laughed. You missed it. Now turn to Leviticus. I'm just kidding. Okay, so that that's the picture. They're teaming up to get Jesus. They want to get him. Who knows what a tag team wrestling match is? Right? She got the wrestling ring, the WWE. Don't tell me it's not real because it's real. Okay? And you got two guys in this corner, two guys in this corner, two guys come in the middle and they begin to fight. When they get tired, they can go tag their friend and the other guy can jump in. And except for in this tag team match, there are three or four groups in this corner and Jesus by himself. So the Pharisees recognized that Jesus was talking bad about him. They go grab the Herodians. They tag the Herodians and say, let's go together. Now go to verse 23. The same day, so again, we're all in the same little time period. The same day came to him the Sadducees, which say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him, and they're going to ask him about the resurrection and things like that, about the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the women, the woman who was married to the seven men whose wife is, is she going to be in the king in, in heaven? They're trying to trip him up, okay? So what's a Sadducee? It's a religious leader who denies all supernatural things to include resurrection of the dead. They denied the afterlife, and they were they were extremely self-sufficient, and they denied the existence of a spiritual world. They didn't believe in the resurrection, y'all. That's why they're sad, you see. That's my dad joke. That's my dad joke. Come on, come on. Okay, so we're seeing, so they tag in, they tag in the Herodians, the Pharisees do. Pharisees and the Herodians together can't do it, so those two walk back dejected. They tag in the, uh, the Sadducees. Now what's going to happen? 
Now we go back to verse 20 to verse 34 from this passage. And it says, but when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, Jesus whooped them. That's just, that's just the, that's, that's the way I want to say it. He took care of business and he did it correctly. He did it by answering their questions, honoring his father. And then they were gathered together and then they send this lawyer to go talk to him. So what's the plan? So we, we have, we have the prop, we have the preface and then we have the players. And now what's the plan? The plan is twofold. They're going to use trickery and confusion. Turn to Mark chapter seven, verse nine. And this is, this is part of the, um, part of the homework that Lewis did for me that I appreciate. Mark chapter seven, verse nine. And he said unto them, full well, ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. They don't, they're not asking Jesus about all these different things, taxes and whose wife is this wife going to be who is married to these seven guys. You know what they care about? Their own traditions and themselves looking good because the minute that Jesus says something against God or them, they want to move on him. They don't care about the commandments of God. They care about their own traditions and their own clout. And then go to Mark again. We, we visited this text on Sunday, but it was just so good and it, it drove home the point. Um, Mark chapter 12, verse 38 and 40. 38 through 40. Mark 12, 38 to 40. And he said unto them, in his doctrine or in his teaching, beware of the scribes which love to go along, to go in long clothing and love salutations in the marketplace and the chief seats in the synagogues and the uppermost rooms at feasts, which devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These shall receive great damnation. They're going to try to trick Jesus into saying something against God. And then Jesus points it out here in Mark. They're all about themselves. They're all about their glory, their own, their own status in life. They're glory thieves. They don't, they don't give commands and, and, and counsel to the people that they can actually carry out. They give them things that they can't carry out so that they look better because they, all the people thought they were carrying it out. But they're not. Why do you think we call people Pharisees as Christians? You're being a Pharisee. We don't even use, we don't even use the word hypocrite. Here's the difference between the word Pharisee and hypocrite, y'all. A hypocrite is every single one of us in this room. We all contradict ourselves. We all say, I don't want to do this sinful thing, but yet we do this sinful thing. Why? Because the Bible says that's what humans do because we're sinful. Pharisees are people who say one thing and have no intention of doing the right thing. They have no intention. None. And then they want to try to cause confusion. Matthew twenty-two fifteen. It says it. They want to try to entangle him in his talk. Because if they can entangle him in his talk, they'll get the people all messed up. They'll discredit Jesus and the people will stop following him. And then they'll start following the Pharisees. So that's the preface. That's the players and that's the plan. Now we get into the plot. And inside the plot, we're going to see a play-by-play. And here's how it goes down. In Matthew 22, verses 34 to 36, we see that the Pharisees are requesting and pressing. They are requesting and pressing. Matthew 22, 34. 
But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the law? What are they requesting? They're requesting information. What's the greatest commandment? The motive of why they want to know what the greatest commandment is, because there's ten commandments. If Jesus only picks one, they've got him. Right? That's that's what they're going for. So that's what they're requesting. And what are they pressing? They're pressing their plan forward. They're pressing their, their, their trickery campaign forward to try to get Jesus to mess things up and to cause people to want to stop following him. And they're doing that by way of asking him a question to try to set up a trap for him. Number two, in the, in the play by play, we see Jesus is responding and he's presenting. And that's in verse 37 to 39. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus is responding to their request. You guys want information? I'm going to give you information. You're trying to get me to pick one. I'm going to tell you what the greatest commandment is, but I'm going to tell you what the second greatest commandment is too. And we're going to get to the reason why he did that here in a second. And then Jesus is also presenting. He's presenting them the central focus of the Ten Commandments. If you were to break down the Ten Commandments, one, two, three, four, five through ten, the first four are about loving God. Jesus said the first greatest commandment was to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. If you were to take the next six, it's how you deal with your neighbor. And he said the second greatest commandment is thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Jesus presented them something that they couldn't refute. He gave them the whole of the law in two sentences. He encapsulated the entire commandment given by God in two sentences. Man, I wish I could be there. You ever wish you could talk, you could talk, travel back in time and you could just look at the Pharisees' faces? Cause they know the law, y'all. They know the law. They know the first five books of the Bible. Raise your hand if you have anything in Leviticus memorized. Okay, I'm just checking. Me neither. But think about that. They have the first five books of the Bible memorized. What are the first five books of the Bible called? The Torah. What does the Torah mean in Hebrew? The law. They know all the law. And so he presents it to them, and they know. They know they're defeated. And in verse 40, this is what we see. So they're, the, 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 the Pharisees are requesting and pressing Jesus. Then Jesus is responding and presenting. And now Jesus is gonna, is ratifying and protecting. This is my favorite part. Verse 40. On these two commandments hang all the law. All ten commandments hang on these ten and the prophets. Everything the prophets ever told you. Everything the prophets presented you from Moses on Mount Sinai all the way into Joshua leading the people in there. The first five books of the Bible. Everything, bam, right there. It's, it's, everything, it's here, right here in these two. So he's ratifying. I just learned that word. That's why I'm using it. I'm just going to throw that out there and be really honest with you guys. It's such a great word. This is what it means. To approve or enact a legally binding act that would not otherwise be binding in the absence of such approval. Jesus is the authority that can approve that these are the two greatest commandments. Jesus ratifies the two greatest commandments and sums up the whole entire 
kit and caboodle of the Ten Commandments and just gives it to the Pharisees straight. That should tell us how we should deal with people as Christians. We don't have to be afraid of what the world says. I have a family member that thinks abortion's okay. When I talk to this family member, I never say, yeah, I can see where you're coming from. Because I don't. Abortion is wrong. Why? Because it's a life. Why? Because it was created in the image of God. I will never tell that family member, yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. It's okay for us to dis- No. It is okay for us to disagree because I'm not the judge of this person. But the reason why I disagree with you is because my God said so. And I'm going to stand on that. Turn to Matthew 7, 28 and 29. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. So this is after we talked about Jesus telling them, if you build your house on the rock, you will withstand the storms of life. If you build it on the sand, it's going to fall. If you don't hear and do my word, it's not real. It's not going to last. And at the end, in 28 and 29, it says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine or his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus is ratifying these things for them. And in Matthew chapter 22, back to our original chapter, verse 33, it says, and when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Jesus is solidifying, ratifying, and just laying the law down the way it's supposed to be laid down in truth and in love and for the people's benefit. And that's the next part of this. Jesus is ratifying and he's protecting. What is he protecting? Jesus is protecting the law from the Pharisees and the way they want to change it and the way they want to add to it and they want to, the way they want to subtract to it and they want to dilute it and they want to, they want to take it apart and make it fit their narrative. Jesus is protecting the law from that because that's God's law. And then he's protecting the people there and us as believers today from believing false Teachings, false prophecy, false anything. If you don't see it in scriptures, brothers and sisters, it's not real when it comes to the way we should live our life. Contrary to popular belief, there really are only two genders on this planet, and it's male and female. Homosexuality is a sin. Being a drunkard is a sin. And Jesus is protecting God's law for the glorifying of his father and for the edifying of his people. So we talked through the preface, which had the players and their plan. We talked through the plot, the play by play. We just finished that. Let's get to the application. Here it is. This is the point. This is the point. In the point, we have to recognize what we can't do. So we have the problem, the problem. The first part of the problem is that there's self-centeredness. That's why we can't keep the two greatest commandments. We can't love God and love people because we are all self-centered. Everybody shake your head up and down, yes. 
because every single one of us loves ourselves more at certain points of time than we do God and other people. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. I'm only going to read the very first portion of this. It's a long list of sinful acts, but I want you to hear how it starts. And I want you to remember that we believe 2 Timothy 3.16 when it says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It means it was breathed out by God. That means every word that's in here, down to the order of the words, brothers and sisters, it matters. I could get excited. I could geek out in the Greek out for you. I, I, I... I get excited about the Word of God, okay? Just thinking about how intricately and methodically detailed it is. We believe that it's breathed out by God. We believe that it's profitable for doctrine or teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. It is profitable. It is good for us, for teaching us what's right, for telling us when we're not right, for helping us get right and helping us stay right. So 2 Timothy 3, uh, 2, it says, For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And then covetous boasters and all those other things. What's the first thing on that list? Lovers of them own selves. We are self-centered. Number two, second part of the problem. We have a distorted view of God's law. People think that God's law is unrealistic, that it's a burden, and that it's unachievable. Can't do it. It's too hard. Or I don't want to follow God's law. It's just something to keep me pinned in this cage. I want to be free. My heart tells me, oh, man, my heart just stopped beating when you said that. It kills me when people say stuff. I just followed my heart. You just got to trust your heart. Hmm. They don't get it. They don't get it. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. The book of Deuteronomy is slowly becoming one of my favorite books. I don't think it'll ever usurp judges, but it's it's getting close. It's so good. It is so good, y'all. It's all about the law of God. It's all about how God gives the people, the law, so that they can obey it, so they can love him, so they can be close to him, so they can be blessed by him. And then at a certain point in the book of Deuteronomy, God prophesies and says, but y'all aren't going to listen. You're going to disobey me. And we, we, were, we started going through the book of Judges. Don't worry, we will get back to it. In the book of Judges, we already see how the people got away from obeying the law, don't we? And what's happening to them and how they're paying for it. Well, look at, look at uh, Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. We're going to read 11 through 14. Pay very close attention so that we can get rid of the fallacy that God's law is unrealistic, it's a burden, and it's unachievable. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. For this is the commandment which I command thee this day. It is not hidden from thee, neither is it far off. God didn't just give us 16 pieces to a 500-piece puzzle and say, go and make it work. He gave us 500 pieces to a 500-piece puzzle. And he gave us the Holy Spirit to help us put the puzzle together. It's not far off. Why? Because if you're a believer, you should have your word. You should have your word. You should be taking this thing everywhere with you. When I was working with the veterans, I used to tell the veterans, you wouldn't leave to go outside the wire to fight the Taliban 
without your weapon, would you? No. Why would you go outside your house and not take your Bible with you? I take my Bible everywhere I go, brothers and sisters. And I'm not saying that because I'm cool. I'm saying that because I know if I don't, I'm an idiot. I'll sin. I need to have it with me. I feel safe with it. That's I'm being 100% honest with you. Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema. Tell, and Jesus, or, or God tells them that they need to bind it around them. They need to have the phylacteries on their forehead so that they never forget. They need to put it on the doorpost so they see it as they go out and as they come in. Because it's not far off. Verse 12. It is not in heaven that thou shouldest say, who shall go up for us to heaven and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither it is beyond the sea that thou shouldest say, who shall go over the sea for us and bring it unto us that we may hear it and do it. It's not too high. It's not too low. It's not in the middle of the ocean where you can't get to it because you'll drown. It's right here, right now, in front of your face. And then verse 14. Oh, I love this. But the word is very nigh unto thee in thy mouth and in thy heart that thou mayest do it. Don't just be hearers, but be also doers. That dispels... It's unrealistic. It's a burden. It's unachievable. Matthew 11, 28 and 30. We know these passages. We know it well. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why is he saying that? Because the Pharisees' yoke was not easy and it wasn't light. And the, they crushed people with their rules and their regulations and their traditions because they knew they wouldn't be able to uphold it. But Jesus is saying, no, being a Christian is hard. It is. We know that, right? Every single one of us have trials in our lives. But having access to the commandments of God and being able to carry out the commandments of God, it is not hard because Jesus said, Take on my yoke, be a disciple of mine, and it's going to be easy. Meaning, you can follow me, you can obey me, you will know what to do. I will never leave you in the dark. You won't be missing pieces of the puzzle, so you have a complete picture of what you need to be doing as a Christian. So the point, that's the problem, here's the practice. The first one was love God, right? Love God. What does that look like practically? Well, it looks like you have a relationship with him. That's how we love God. That's step one. Step two is obedience to God, right? That's what First John's all about. We obey God because we love God. We love God because he first loved us. We show God we love him by obeying the commandments. Why does God want us to obey him? Why does he want us to have a relationship with him? Because he wants to be number one. He wants to be the top priority. That's why Jesus says, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Remember, God's word is profitable, right? And it's God-breathed, and we know what it's for. The word all is there on purpose. It means all of us. Every single ounce of our living being, our thoughts, Our actions, our words, our beliefs, all of it have to be loving God, worshiping God, having a relationship with God. How do we do that? Well, number one, we meditate. We meditate on Scripture. We spend time learning about Him through the Word. 
We understand who he is in the word. We believe what he reveals to him, uh, about himself to us through his word. And we believe by meditating and hiding in our hearts so that we may do it, right? Deuteronomy 30, uh, 30 14. We, we know that what he says about himself is true and that he's going to do exactly what he says he's going to do. Meditation. Number two, application. We take what we read and we meditate and we live out, we live it out in our lives. Application is obedience and action. Application is obedience and action. We take what we read here and we actually put it into practice in our lives. All of us can say we love God. Married people, who's your closest neighbor? Your spouse. Man, it's hard to love somebody sometimes. I'm saying that not because it's hard for me to love Emily. I know Emily has a hard time loving me because I'm not the greatest person on the earth sometimes. Right? We all, if we go back up to the, to the number one problem of what the point of this is, which is love God and love people, we're self-centered. And so it's hard to love one another. But we take what we read in Scripture and we learn how to love one another and we put it into play in the way that we treat one another. And when we love one another, what is that a result of? Our love for God. We will love one another out of the overflow and the outpouring of our love for God. Because when we love God, we obey His commandments. When we obey His commandments, husbands love their wives like Christ loved the church. First, most, always, intentionally, sacrificially. Number three, in loving God, communication. We have meditation, application, communication. We're praying, we're talking to God, and we're not just asking for things. I understand that we need to ask for things. God wants us to ask for things. Why? Because that means we're humbling ourselves and we're confessing to him, we can't do this without you. We need divine intervention. But we're praising him, we're worshiping him for who he is and what he's done and what he will continue to do. Brothers and sisters, in your prayer life, don't forget to give thanks. If you guys want an acronym, I'll give it to you. I'm going to give it to you anyways. It's called WAR. Because when you pray, you rage war. You worship, you ask, I'm sorry, you worship, you adore, and you request. Worship, adore, request. You don't have to do it in that order. You can do the act. You can do it however you want to. That's just what I do because I like to wage war. Maybe it's the Marine in me. I don't know. Number two, love our neighbors. So we have love our neighbors. Love our neighbors, number one, conduct. Our conduct towards each other should reflect that we love one another. How do we, how do we see that in Scripture? This is a broad overview, brothers and sisters. We don't have time to parse out all the, 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 the different verses in this. The whole book of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3, are known as the indicatives. That means you're a Christian. This is what your life is because you're a Christian. You're redeemed. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You're chosen. You are no longer an alien. You are grafted and connected to God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. You are made alive. Right? Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses. My favorite word in the Bible, by the way, but. But God in His mercy. 
And then in chapters 4 through 6, we see what we would call the imperatives. This is what you are as a Christian in chapters 1 through 3. In chapters 4 through 6, we see this is how you need to act. These are the commands for you to follow out. And we see things like forgive one another, love one another, pray for one another. Don't be angry and sin against one another. Don't talk nasty to one another. As you southern mamas like to say, don't be ugly. So that's our conduct. And then number two, our concern. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. First Corinthians 13, verse 5 through 7. This is the chapter on love, right? Everybody's familiar with this chapter. And so it says in verse 5, it says, doth not behave itself unseemly, meaning love. It, it Love doesn't seeketh, not her own. It is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoice, rejoice, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. What if we read it like this? Robert does not behave unseemly. Robert doesn't seek his own. Robert is not easily provoked. Robert doesn't think evil. Robert rejoices not in iniquity, but in truth. That's how we walk out loving one another. When you read this passage and you know what it says, but there's a practical application for you as a person, as a believer in Jesus Christ, to apply this to your life. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. All of us know that verse. Me and Lewis use it every other sermon. It might be the most used passage, maybe besides Lewis's, uh, was it Proverbs 4.23 or the one about you know your heart and the guard it because of the springs of life come out of it. I think these are the two most used passages in our in our in our rep- repertoire. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verse three and four. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Don't think of yourself first. Think about other people before you. Don't do it for your own glory. Do it to lift them up and to edify them. Why? Let this mind be in you, verse 5, which was also in Jesus Christ. Because that's how Jesus was. That's how Jesus is. And then, so we have loving our neighbors, we have conduct, and we have concern because we're caring about other people before we care about ourselves. And then, number three, and I'll close out on this, our character. And I want to turn to a very, just one of my favorite passages in the Bible about how you're supposed to serve people. John chapter 13. We all know the story. It's when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. John chapter 13. Verses 1 through 5. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour was come, that He should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved His own, having loved His own, which were in the world, He loved them unto the end. Loved them unto the end. Remember that. And supper being ended, the devil, having now put into the head of Judas, 
the heart of Jesus, sorry, Iscariot's Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God, he riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the feet of the disciples and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. That's the scene. That's the setting of this, this story. I don't know if y'all know this. I hope you do, because it would mean that you would understand the significance of feet washing. In Jewish culture, feet washing was for the worst of the worst slaves, meaning not Jewish slaves, Gentile slaves. Because when these people walked everywhere, their feet were disgusting. They walked in animal droppings. They were walking in all kinds of stuff. Washing somebody's feet was not a pleasant experience. It was not something that anyone would want to do on their own. But Jesus got down to do it. Why? Because he loved them until the end. Because he wanted to set an example that no one is above serving anybody. The king of the world, God's only son, puts a towel around him, gets down on his knees, and begins to clean these men's feet after they'd been walking all over Israel and and other places with who knows what all over the bottom of their feet. I'm not going to go through, I'm not going to read this, getting close on time, but just verses 13 to 17, Jesus gives an example to follow. Jesus knew that Judas was going to betray him. We we saw that in the first part of it. He also knew Peter was going to betray him, deny him, right? But he still served him. And we can serve difficult people too. That That's what that tells us. It means we can love others as we love ourselves, even when they're difficult, because Christ did it. Right here in this passage, he washed Peter's feet. Oh, by the way, Peter even tried to stop him. Oh, no, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. Well, if I don't wash your feet, then you won't be clean. Well, then wash my head too, Lord. Oh, Peter, that's me. That's that's the disciple I relate to the most. You want to know why? Because he's the foot and mouth disciple. He's that guy that always pops off before he thinks about it. And then he's like, oh, wait, yeah, you're right, Lord. I'm sorry. That's me. That's me. Verses 21 to 30. Jesus tells about his betrayal. And then here's here's what I want you to see. In verse 34 and 35, in chapter 13, he says, A new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this all men know that ye are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Brothers and sisters, if somebody accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Because of the love that you show other people. Brothers and sisters, this is, this is Jesus showing love to believers and unbelievers. That's what he did. We don't get a pat, you don't get to me, you don't get to treat unbelievers like they're less than scum. You have a heart for the lost. We share the gospel with the lost. It might be hard for them to understand, and that's okay. You think it was easy for the Pharisees to understand that Jesus just summed up all Ten Commandments in two sentences? I bet they were angry. Because that's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that the gospel will be offensive. It will cause mothers to hate sons, fathers to hate their children. It will cause brothers and sisters to split. Some of you know that firsthand in this congregation. So Christ's love for his Disciples is a sacrificial love. John 15, 13 says that, you know, he 
you know, the, um, I'm going to read it. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Right? Where do I hear that all the time? Mis- misquoted. At funerals. At funerals, especially in the veteran community. We love that verse. Oh, my friend died for me in combat. He has the best love for me. But that's not what it's saying. It's sentimental, sure. But let's say it like it is. The context of this is greater love has Jesus because he laid down his life for us. That's what that means. That's the ultimate sacrifice. Do we love others sacrificially? We need the Holy Spirit to do so. We need a new heart. And we need to be growing in the fruit of the Spirit. If we all have been regenerated, we believe that regeneration precedes faith. We have all had open heart surgery where the Holy Spirit has reached in and grabbed our heart of stone and pulled it out, put in a heart of flesh and changed us. That's that you were dead in your trespasses, but now you are alive in Christ. And because of that, the evidence of that should be that we love God with all our hearts, with all our minds, and with all our souls, and that we love others as ourselves. Those are the two greatest commandments. Those encapsulate all of the commandments. That is how we live a foundational Christian life. So for our own selves, we need to apply this. When we're ministering to others, when they're in difficult situations and they find these two things very hard to do, we need to minister this to them. These are the words that produce life. They're not a joke. It's not an option. We believe in Christ. We, we, we believe in the sufficiency and errancy and the authority of Scripture. We show God we love Him by being obedient to His Word. Brothers and sisters, may we be a church that loves God with all our heart, with all our mind and all our soul. And may we be a church that loves others as we love ourselves. Let's pray. God, thank You for this day. Thank You for Your Word. Thank you for your son, Jesus, which you sent so that he would die for those who would repent and believe that you would, that we, that we would have eternal life because of what he did for us. And Lord, because we saw his example, we know that we can do it. We know that your word has taught us and given us the tools and equipped us to be able to love you with all our hearts, minds, and souls and equipped us to love one another. Lord, may we have a heart to do that. Lord, I pray that you would prick every single heart in this, in this, in this church tonight and that we would think through these words, these two sentences, and that we would choose to dedicate our lives to loving you completely and loving others completely and sacrificially and that we would be example of your son and his great love for us and that he died for us to others who don't know him, who are far off from him. Father, we thank you for this church. We thank you for our pastor. We thank you for each member here. Lord, you heard the prayers tonight. Please be with and and, and um, minister to each request that was made. Be with us as we go home, Lord, and be with us as we prepare um, for the men's conference this week. Lord, I pray that your word would be preached boldly from this pulpit by these men who have studied your word so that it may um, cause the men to be better men. And when the families come and gather, Lord, that we would be a better church unit as a whole. 
Lord, we love you, we need you, and we praise you, and we say all of this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.